Hello, folks. Before we get into this episode, just a quick technical note. This episode has some slight differences. Embedded in the show art for this episode is all the artwork that's being discussed in the show. So to be able to see the artwork while it's being discussed, just look down at your podcast app, and it should be shown there. If for any reason it's not, there is an accompanying YouTube video that's in the show notes. We hope you enjoy getting to see the great work from Dale Cox's new exhibition, Inner Logic. Thanks, and on with the show. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you want that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Climactic, the people's voice on climate change. Hello Mark, hello listeners. Now to say this week's episode is a bit different would be an understatement as I know you've gone where no Australian environmental podcast has gone before. Well, I'm not sure if no other environmental podcast has recorded a a live talk at an art exhibition before, but I know for sure that no other climb art event has been Mm. produced as a podcast before. So we'll take that crown. Congratulations, Mark. Okay, (laughs) who are Climb Art? Well, Climb Art's a group I reached out to a couple months ago. And uh, they got back to me with this opportunity to record one of their events. Okay. They're a registered charity here in the city of Melbourne. And actually, they they won a city of Melbourne council award in 2015 for their outstanding work. Mm -hmm. They connect climate change with the arts. So they're right there at the intersection of those two topics. They connect scientists who want to use the medium of the arts to spread awareness and add some context to their work. And with artists who want to grapple with the biggest issues we're all facing. Okay, I found this a fascinating talk, and we'll be back after the show where we'll delve into the points raised a little bit more, but here we go with a climb art talk featuring artist Dale Cox. Guy Abrahams and myself are two second-generation dealers in the or representative galleries, and Guy chose an interesting course. I'm not a, I won't entirely say why, because it leaves me in a wrong and a funny position, but to leave the gallery with a great history, and go to something that he was very passionate about, and that is the care of the earth, basically. And then using his past with his family and concerns about the climate, so the, the word climate was born, which was a really marvellous uh, thing, and Guy's heart's really there. Actually, it, he was heading in that way a long time because with the Art Dealers Association and his gallery, when he served drinks at the gallery openings, it had little messages on the bottles and the jugs and so on about caring for your heart and your health. So this is actually something that you've been heading for for a long time and now you're a leading and important figure in it. We really appreciate that. Dale Cox, um, I can't quite remember how we met, but we're a good fit because the work that, you know, the, the your intelligence, your ability to paint, your passion, the story behind your work is beautifully articulated 
in um, in exhibitions like this. You're very you're very clear where you stand here. John Wolseley said to me a few weeks ago when I said we're wrecking ourselves, and he said, "Well, by the way, have you got your mobile phones off?" <laughs> <laughs> It's us that'll be in trouble, not the earth. And that was a rather sobering comment for my, uh, for me, so that the, our host will actually eventually shake our guests off and start again if we're not careful. So it's not a bad place to start. Guy with his experience, Dale with his attitude on the canvas, on the walls, and a very good subject for our well-being for the future. Over to you guys. Thanks very much, Stuart. Well, welcome, everybody, to this uh, discussion, which has been titled The Artist and the Activist, a conversation on art in the Anthropocene. Firstly, I think on behalf of Dale and myself, and I suspect Stuart and everyone else here, we would like to acknowledge that we are meeting on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and future. I'd like to particularly thank uh, Stuart uh, and Australian Galleries for hosting this, and also Marielle Sony, who works with Stuart here at the Gallery and is also a board member of Climart, and she came up with this idea of putting uh, Dale and I together uh, to have this chat. So thanks very much to Marielle. And I'd also like to let you know, as uh, Stuart just mentioned, with his broad knowledge of technological society, that today's discussion is being recorded for podcasting at a later date, and we'll arrange for the podcast to be put onto an iPhone, given to Stuart, and the button pressed, and he'll know all about it when it happens. Uh, so just so you know, um, because we do hope there will be some uh, general discussion amongst all of the audience members, as well as Dale and myself, but it's a great new podcast called Climactic, and it's, I think, had about four or five sessions up already, is that right? Seventeen. Seventeen, there you go, I'm, I haven't caught up. But really looking at Australia and the stories of real people in Australia, how we are all experiencing climate change. So uh, we're really thrilled to be uh, collaborating on that and to have hopefully part of this put up at some point. Okay, so it is a conversation. Dale and I have come in earlier about a week ago and had a look at his work in a bit of detail and had a chat to each other. But I thought, Dale, we'd maybe give a little bit more introduction to ourselves just as to why perhaps Marielle chose us both, uh, you as the artist and me as the activist, to be here for the discussion. Hi, everybody. Thanks for turning out today. I essentially see my role as an artist as an opportunity, really, more than anything, an opportunity to vent my spleen, to explain how I feel about the state of the earth, how I feel as a human being in the situation that I find myself in, what it feels like to be part of the problem, but also trying to find ways in which we can work our way towards hopefully a solution. I see art as a magnificent forum in which to express some of those concerns and ideas and almost, I almost feel it as an obligation if I'm going to be making art that I address the things that to my mind are the most significant things. Thanks. As Stuart mentioned, I ran a uh, contemporary commercial art gallery for about 20, 25 years and then transferred over into the environmental field, went back to university, studied climate change, the policy and the politics of climate change, and was one of the co-founders of Climart, Arts for a Safe Climate. The intention of that group was to use art or to look at art through the lens of how do we tell the story about what's happening to our planet, how do we get people to look at it, think about it. And so it's, it's great that we're 
both able to get together in this exhibition to meld, meld the two, the two roles. As an activist, which is how, in fact, I saw, I don't know if anyone see Hillary Clinton interviewed by Lee Sales on the 7.30 report. And when Lee asked her, what do you have on your business card now? She sort of thought and said, activist. And I thought, Bugger, I want that on my card, on my business card. But I then I decided I just won't have business cards. I'll just tell people. <laughs> the topic. Art in the Anthropocene. Now, I suspect everyone here has got a pretty good idea about what art is, or we all think we know what art is, but the Anthropocene is a word which has been bandied about now for a number of years, and some of you may know what it means or what it's supposed to mean. Some may not. So maybe, Dale, you can give us a sense of what the Anthropocene is. Okay. Well, to my way of thinking, the Anthropocene is a very hard word to pronounce and (laughs) describes pretty much the era where... Humanity has altered the course of the, the planet's trajectory, certainly in terms of the geological deep time. If we look back at the various epochs of history, we've, we've suddenly created this sort of skin, this dermis of humanity that has left an indelible mark. Everything changes from here. And when we look back in a thousand years, this will be very much known as the Anthropocene, whereby mankind has essentially pretty much um, taken over, for want of a more scientific term, and altered the planet to such a degree that it it figures at a geological level. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, I'm not sure if it's actually finally been decided, but it certainly is a term which has been put up now to the International Geological Society as the official description of the geological uh, era that we're living in, the Anthropocene. I think there's a layer of carbon, perhaps a layer of uh, nuclear fallout, and more recently, a layer of plastic. So when they dig back through our soils, uh, that's what they'll find. So, Dale, your exhibition here today, a magnificent exhibition, if I may say so, and, and so many important connections that we teased out and that you thought you knew everything about your work and then I sort of started pointing out things which I thought I knew about it. Perhaps can you tell us a bit about how this exhibition came into being and how it fits into, in a way, your history of painting? Oh, thanks, Guy. Uh, in previous shows that I've had, I've tended to address environmental concerns in a more direct manner in addressing my feelings and attitudes and concerns about the landscape and the environment itself. So with the sheep series, you saw the agricultural livestock literally eating the land alive and becoming the land. In the landscape paintings I've done in the past, you see my attempt to sort of portray deeper time in geology and the sort of dermis of life on the top. Looking outwards, talking about the environment and how those issues concern me. Lately, I've been thinking a little bit more about where the human animal sort of fits into that equation. And I've been thinking a lot about the concept that I call, or that we all call, um, cognitive dissonance, which is the difference between two competing realities. And we're living in an interesting phase now where we're all quite aware of the environmental concerns that are confronting us. We're all conscious of those things. We also have a, a have a dissonance between the lives that we're living, the way we consume, the, the Western world's propensity to consume, our aspirations, what we hope to achieve and what we hope for our children. There's a dissonance between that and another reality, which is what we know needs to happen to correct the problem. And when you think of the third world that's charging towards second, first world ways of consuming and aspirations, everyone wants to have a good life, and yet we're we're killing ourselves with that excess and that consumption. So how do we reconcile that gap between the two? And I think humans have a terrific propensity for, frankly, sort of burying their head in the sand. We're the only species on Earth that can contemplate its own mortality. So 
therefore we've, we're very well practised at diversion tactics, being in denial or finding sort of avenues that help us to contemplate that quite dark thought. And now we're coming into that era when we've sort of got that double possibility that not only do we contemplate our own mortality, but we're contemplating potentially being the sixth mass extinction that the planet has known. And as John Wolseley said, the planet will go on, but we might take the whole thing down with us if we're not careful and bring on the cockroaches. So, so how does the human animal you know, reconcile those things. And to a large degree, I think we've entered that era of post-truth for that sort of reason. You know, the far right are sort of scrabbling for excuses and trying to find all sorts of diversions and tactics and tabloid journalism keeps us all happily just reading our own silly little gossip. The human animal's so human-centric. We're, we're so worried about each other and ourselves, which is natural and it's normal and all species have that inclination to focus in on themselves. But as stewards of the planet, we need to be looking more outward. How do we do that? And how do we uh, sort of cross that sort of cognitive bridge between the world we've created and the world we need to create? Dale has thought about this long and hard um, from our discussions that we had earlier in the week. I can see he's a, a deep thinker on these issues, and, and that does come out in your paintings, Dale. One of the things that we, we discussed and, and I noticed is, although you're talking about in these works the effect of mankind in a way and his and her relationship on the planet, in nowhere in your works does there appear a real human being. There are various symbols of humans, there are various mounds which resemble humans, but you don't actually show any people who we sort of recognise as living and breathing humans. That's clearly a conscious choice. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Okay, so after the show, wander into the show next door, wander into the show across the road, go into all the great galleries of the world, go to the art fair, and you'll see a lot of figurative art You'll see a lot of portraits, you'll see a lot of human flesh, you'll see a lot of us portrayed back at us. It is a conscious decision of mine that I try and avoid it. I try and avoid figurative art or painting the figure. Uh, to me, it's it's been done to death to some extent, and I think the human condition is eternally fascinating, and I do think there's a lot to be said in that area. It's just not for me. And I make a deliberate conscious decision not to be an artist that works in that field. It's just something that I've made a conscious decision about. So if you do see figures in my work, they'll either be a skeleton, which sort of represents everybody, or some of the monolithic paintings here where you see secular gods, if you like, or manifestation of mankind sort of writ large on the landscape. And on the other hand, your portrayal of natural elements is... Well, it's not hyper-real, but it's it's very real, and we certainly get a sense in all of these works where natural forms and animals and plants appear, they're very much alive. So in a way, are you contrasting this sort of something you're saying about mankind's mortality as opposed to nature's <laughs> continuance? Yeah, perhaps. I guess my conceit is that I'm also a painter, and I want to paint, and I want to represent the things that are important to me in a way that I, I choose to, to represent them. So I guess feeling quite an affinity with the natural world, it just comes naturally to me to want to represent it to my best consent. And you could call it a conceit, but I'm like any artist, I'm just trying to convey my, my feelings and my thoughts. And I love Australian landscape. I'm interested in nature. It just comes as second nature to me to, to portray it that way. How do you how do you see your work as a sort of a continuance of that, for example, Australian landscape tradition from 
early talking about Western landscape, obviously, but yep. from se- settlement or invasion here, those initial images of the landscape, how do you see your work sort of working into that, that continuance? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, when you think of colonial art, I think of Von Gerard and, and Bivolo and those ginormous, beautiful representations of a very dark and brooding kind of a landscape, that colonial vision that seemed to imbue the very early earliest interpretations or European interpretations of the landscape. There's a sense of the other and there's a sense of the looming and you often see a tiny little figure sort of being kind of dwarfed by this this magnificent sort of brooding darkness. And that to me described when colonisation at its very sort of beginnings was quite overwhelmed and daunted by this wild place. And then slowly but surely you saw you see the Heidelberg School sort of putting an, an edge of sentimentality onto things and the taming of the landscape and the clearing of the landscape and the pastoral. So you start to see a romanticising and a kind of a human sort of imposition onto the landscape. And then my work with the paintings like The Sheep, for example, try to take that to the next level where you see rather than a brooding dark surrounding, you're actually seeing the land itself has been subsumed into a commodity. So it's, I guess... I see my place as being in that sort of third stage of pre-colonisation, colonisation, post-colonisation, where I'm trying to rethink the way we look at the landscape or the way we understand the Australian landscape in the current era. One of the words you used during our discussion the other day was humankind as usurper, usurper of the landscape. But that painting down the end, if you briefly have a look, which has got this sort of images of the camels embedded in the landscape, you were explaining how those camels, which feral, well, they're now feral, they were brought to Australia, have now become very much part of the Australian landscape. Eaten it alive, so to speak. So very much so than the idea of the usurper, the invader, someone coming in. Of course, the sheep only tell part of the story because they're only the halfway point in the usurping process. We we consume the sheep, either wear them on our backs or we we eat them. Yeah, it's about that post-colonial idea of the landscape being completely tamed and and turned over to our own, let's face it, quite self-serving, selfish kind of ends. And in that sort of discussion about mankind, humankind being very much looking at the world as a resource, we're only now starting to realise, of course, that it's a finite resource. And so we can't keep taking stuff out and dumping it back in because you eventually run out or you just muddy your own waters. I think maybe we could talk about a few of the works in particular. You've embedded, literally embedded an iconic contemporary, although now deceased, figure uh, in the landscape. What what were you trying to say here? Okay, so obviously now that I'm sort of looking at the human condition in amongst my concerns about the environment, we start to get into some slightly more esoteric and murky sort of waters. So, okay, here we've got a dead Elvis Presley on his back, a beautiful corpse, if you like, and... You're seeing a pilgrimage, uh, you're seeing a, a mass mourning process, you're seeing a, a bunch of people camping out on what they consider a sacred place, which is the secular god that, that is Elvis. So in this era whereby religion has been kicked to the curb to some degree, humans still need something, they need something to distract themselves from perhaps their own mortality. And Here's an, here's an example of a secular god, someone who's larger in death than they ever were in life. It talks about nostalgia and it talks about the romance of the past and the way we sentimentalise. And Elvis, of course, died much older than this portrayal of him here and he died on the toilet. 
But here we have the beautiful corpse, we have the beautiful Elvis, the idealised Elvis, the romanticised Elvis. And even amongst the, the beauty of the Australian landscape, humans are, have that, that self-honing ability to basically home in on what they grab and take and hold, hold dear, perhaps to their own detriment, because the real world is waiting and being ignored to some degree. It strikes me also that it, it speaks to, if we're talking about anthropomorphism, the, the human instinct to make of natural forms them visions of ourselves. So whenever we drive through the countryside, or well, certainly know I do this and my children do, and you see a rock formation, straight away you're trying to make out the profile, who does it look like? And in fact, if you drive through Australia, often you'll come through some pass and there'll be a sign saying, you know, this is Queen Victoria's profile on this rock. And in fact, even Indigenous culture does that to landforms. And here, I suppose you've really brought that up to the nth degree. <laughs> it strikes me that, in fact, some of your trees there are Von Gerard-like, yeah. that they, in fact, don't, don't really... They, you know, they could be from that early colonial yeah. past. People call my trees very sort of uh, Glover-esque as well um, for the same reason. That's not a deliberate thing for me. Someone did say to me once, show me a straight tree. <laughs> and apart from a pine plantation, there is no such thing as a straight tree. But, um, you know, there's lots of ways to read paintings, and that's what I love about contemporary art, is that it's not a literal transmission of information. It's, a, it's an open-ended proposition. I like the ambiguity that some paintings hold because that invites other people to interpret them on my behalf. One, one, one of the things that occurred to me halfway through painting this picture, for example, is the idea of the beautiful corpse, as I was talking about. And um, what happens to a corpse? Flies descend on it. And there's something about this painting that the camping, the camping people suddenly became the flies. So there's a dark thought. There's another painting we discussed just over here which shows a slice of land, the geology. You can see the layers below with a very lush tropical segment of forest sitting up above and that slice of land has sort of been plucked out and placed on a, a neutral background but pushed up against it is a set of airline steps as if someone was boarding that forest. What, what's your interpretation there? Well, that talks to me a little bit about the, the modern era that we're in, whereby our worlds are so compartmentalised and now, and going on holiday recently, for example, I, I jumped on a, a plane, I sat down, I read the paper, I looked at my phone, I watched a movie. I didn't do anything, I didn't move, I just sat there. And then eight hours later, I got off. And when I got off, I was in Thailand. And it was just this really quite strange realisation that, that so many processes have taken place sort of under my feet that I've completely been alienated from I, I, and had no association with. I've handed over my money, got on a plane and I've gotten off in Thailand. That, that idea that we live our lives in such a highly ratcheted and kind of specialised way that we don't we're so unaware of so many of the things that go on. The, the air miles are the obvious things to think about here, the, the fossil fuels that are being consumed to get me to Thailand. I'm so detached from that. I'm so insulated from that, from that reality. It made me think about everyday life, just how much of our everyday life, you know, we, we buy a new car. Most people would probably give very little thought into the resources that have gone into that car. And then the, the running of the car, and then what happens to the car at the end of it. And apply that manifold across your entire existence. Just, just just how insulated we are from the reality of the, the late capitalist sort of industrial age that we live in and the toll that it's taking on the planet. I must say, looking at that, I, I certainly had those thoughts, but also, as you speak now, it's that notion of the commodification 
of almost everything that we do and get. And there the, the, the landscape, the, the lush tropical forest has really been cut and almost packaged. And that sense of convenience also that we don't actually, as you say, you, you get on a plane, you get off. We don't really have to do much to get there. We would just walk up the stairs and then we, we walk down them again. I, I forgot to put a sea of plastic empty water bottles along the understory of the thing, but another painting, another time. Looking at some of, some of the other works, there's an, a number of works which make direct reference to the art world. You've either included actual paintings as commodities, as in that painting on the left, which has the, uh, some famous Australian paintings, I think, stuck in a, in a um, supermarket trolley. And then on this wall, you've actually referred back to a particular, I think, Flemish or Dutch, Dutch painting. And you have another, well, in fact, a representation of the actual painting within the painting. Can you talk about that use, that direct use of art? I've sort of dabbled in that idea for a while of using paintings themselves as a, as a device, uh, a point of departure. It's a, it's a conceit of mine. It's a, it's a concept of mine that I, I've sort of constantly revisiting, I suppose. And I guess for me, it's a comment on where paintings sort of cease to become uh, historical documents or works of art and start to enter that phase of, you know, a, a cultural commodity or even a commercial commodity. And over in this situation over here, I guess it's a, what I would call a post-colonial Australian landscape. The painting at the back with the three Heidelberg School paintings in the stark, dark campground is also a, a, a post-colonial comment on the real landscape versus the romanticised or the sentimentalised Australian landscape. Over here, this painting's a little different. It shows a Dutch winterscape, not by Bruegel, another artist called Hendrik. And he, and it was painted in 1604, and it was in an, in an era in Europe which has been described by um, climate scientists as, as the Little Ice Age. There was a period in the 1600s where we did have a little dip in the climate and cities that were typically not frozen over in winter suddenly froze over for a few decades every winter and they had these prolonged frozen rivers, for example. And that coincided neatly with a, an era in Dutch painting when they were turning their eyes towards everyday genre scenes and village scenes. So you see those beautiful Bruegels of the hunting in the snow and those lovely town paintings and the children playing and what have you. So it was just this neat sort of coalescence of a, ge a geological climate event and and an era in painting. I called it the Little Ice Age, and it's about the human ability to just be sort of unaware of what's going on, but respond in a very sort of, in a, in a very controlled and sort of local kind of way. So, so you see them all celebrating the fact that their rivers are frozen over and, you know, ice skating and having a great time. A bit of a portent of concern about how are we going to react in the next 20 or 30 years to climate change. We're so busy talking about mitigation and how we're going to cope, how the human animal's going to respond to climate change, or we'll just grow crops somewhere else, or we'll just do that, we'll just do that. Those things might be necessary, but it sort of terrifies me that we're already inuring ourselves against the idea of climate change rather than making more overt and desperate attempts to do something about climate change. I don't really see the point in insulating ourselves from the devastation. I don't want my children to be growing up in a world that we look at through a bubble or through some sort of climate-controlled sphere that, that enables us to survive while we just kick the rest of the planet to the curb. Uh, that's what frightens me, and that's what I think we need to be... OK, it's 
it's getting a bit too late for a lot of it, but we still need to find where we can make meaningful change as stewards of the planet, not not as a sort of a self-serving reaction. And as stewards of the planet, there's also the ambition which ambition to explore, which we have, is sometimes realised by getting off the planet. And there's a couple of your works down there. I'm not sure if the sculptural work is placed down there of the religious icon lunar module and there is a painting which also looks at the lunar module which landed on the the moon all those years ago although we're we're led to believe it landed on the moon I mean let's let's face it we all know it was staged but what what are you saying there with that interest in man's ingenuity I suppose to actually leave the planet and what that says about what we can do and perhaps what we think about where we are now all right well that's a that's a holy relic. That's a, that's a reliquy. And if you look in the top of the spaceship, you'll see a, um, a rock. That's a moon rock that I found on the Hearst Ridge line uh, <laughs> out in the northern suburbs. And you can tell it's a moon rock because it's got those little bubbles in it. <laughs> and um, a, holy, a reliquy is a, holy, is a vessel that holds a holy relic. So you might have a shard of the wooden shard of the cross or you might have the finger bone of St. St. John. And, they, and these were considered to be portals into the heavens. They were, they were proof of our, oh, the church's sort of links to, to God. And they were revered and they were um, fake. And the spaceship is basically a parody of that idea of the, the holy relic. And instead of it being the, the domain of religion and the church to take us to heaven, it's actually the spaceship that got us to heaven. So that idea of, of the spaceship as a metaphor for bursting through the Earth's gravitation and mass and the human ascending into a, an ethereal kind of a, a weightlessness and a space, basically science taking us to heaven rather than, than, than the church or religion. So... A playful sort of a little jab at religion there, and and just also playing with the idea of religious art as a as you know as part of the epoch of art making and wanting to do something that looked at religious art but give it a give it a contemporary kind of a twist, and also that idea of the age of discovery as you were touching on before, the human propensity to want to push boundaries and frontiers, and I always laugh when NASA sort of talks about there might be water on Mars. It's like who f-ing cares. <laughs> There's lots of water here, and we need to do something about it, you know? I mean, I think it is interesting to think about that the role of science, that of course we need our scientific discovery and our capacity, and we certainly need that to solve the problems that we have, but it's a question of to what end do we put that to. Dale, thinking more generally, some, and probably not the people here, but some people listening to this podcast might think, well, what the hell really has art got to do with this whole discussion. My sense is that there is a growing movement in the art world, a recognised movement of artists across all disciplines who are concerned with the state of the planet and our relationship with it. But what do you think about that? And what do you think that art can bring that the the knowledge that we have that there's a certain level of CO2 in the atmosphere and that the glaciers are melting and the various projections and graphs and things, what can art do that the science and politics and economics can't convey? What sort of information is art? Well, that's obviously an enormous question. The, the, The first part of it, I would respond by saying that artists have always held a mirror up to the world around them, hopefully at a slightly obtuse angle that affords a view that we don't just take for granted or that we already know. 
So I see an artist's role as always reflecting to some extent their immediate environment and their broader environment and the concerns that they might have or their response to it. So it's natural that artists will be veering and heading into areas concerning climate change. The more we know and understand about it, it's reading the zeitgeist, it's being relevant, it's it's about talking about the things that are obviously of concern. I prefer that type of art much more than the introspective navel-gazing that does occur in some fields of art. No introspective navel-gazing on a dead planet, right? So... I just like to think about how I can, you know, contribute to that broader discussion. A second part of your question, art has a unique way of conveying information. It doesn't exist in a, in, in a linear fashion like a scientific paper might reveal something to you. There's a non-linear, there's a poetic aspect to art making that is, I believe, interpreted and read and understood in the, in the brain in a, in a unique way. In the same way that music can have a transcendental meditative experience, I think art has occupies that space as well. That non-linear way of, of presenting a problem or an idea or a concept. Yeah, art has a looping quality where it's a, dis, it's a kind of a discourse between the, the maker of the art and, and the audience and, or the viewer. And it can create its own little, little mental climate, you know. People contemplate art in a myriad of ways that can create almost these sort of vortexes of thought, you know, that, that wash back and forth. And, and, and then, of course, that's a different interpretation for each person that views the art. So there's something far more esoteric and emotional, the response that we have towards art. And I think that gives an artist an opportunity to really shine a light on, th- on issues that might, might be a little dry, for example, or the environmental story can be so bleak. It can be so all, you know, just feels too big, too hard. I try to create work that invites people to contemplate things in a space that makes it okay to contemplate heavy, heavy thoughts, dark thoughts, you know, uh, things that we have trouble confronting. Notice you, you use the word story there. Do you think that the arts engages with that, us with that capacity, that really necessary ability and desire to have stories told about the world and about our place in it. I mean, if you look at, even recently I've been looking at, you know, 7.30 has been running reports about the droughts. That's something which the farmers and those of us in the city can really relate to and those those impacts. And that storytelling and placing ourselves, although it's a bit navel-gazing, but actually to own up to the fact that we're in the story and part of the story, is that something that art has a role in. Certainly, and I think that's something that art's probably always done. It's, it's provided that mirror, as I say. Yeah, there's always, there's always a visual narrative going on in a painting, if not a literal narrative. And what I do like about it, though, is that invitation in to, to ponder and to contemplate without that sort of didactic sort of message being beaten over the head or, or the gloom and doom of the, the climate change, the state of the environment. Just that, that, sort of space for contemplation and meditation on a perhaps a difficult subject or something that just invites you to, to think about it in a way you may not have. Uh, the sheep, for example, can bring some disparate ideas and mash them together, if you like. It's almost a kind of a visual mash-up of different concepts about European agriculture on an on a unsuitable land, colonisation versus the state we're in, agriculture. All those concepts smashed together, if you like, and I think art is a fantastic way to create those sort of connections. And do you think, and maybe we'll make this sort of the last um, question from me before we move to the audience. I mean, I'm thinking a couple of times, a couple of things. Firstly, you spoke about 
other art that's a bit more navel gazing that's for example just dealing with the human form or or other things but do you think really if you look at what's going on in the art world today that in a very broad sense it is reflective of our interest and or disinterest and or distraction in climate change and the environmental issues that we're facing so although we might say well those works aren't particularly looking at it nevertheless they reflect what a lot of us do every day which is not think about it (laughs) think about ourselves or think about something else and if that's the case what do you think do you think artists have some special role in this area generally in sort of social issues do artists have special capacities and responsibilities I think this is a really interesting and difficult discussion because as someone who ran a gallery, I know the last thing most artists want to be told is, you know, you've got to paint like that or you've got to paint about this subject matter. And I don't think they should. Artists need to feel whatever they're painting is very much from their own personal volition. Uh, Well, with the first part of the question, I think that artists that aren't responding immediately about environmental concerns and things are anyway because we can't escape the world around us we, we can try but we can't we're all products of the times we live in we're all uh, deeply at a, at a very deep psychological level I'm sure that we're all very aware of the, the state that we're in uh, that you, know, you can stick your head in the sand as much as you like and be in denial as much as you like but the truth is that you know the science is in you know we're in serious trouble we need to do something and no one can hide from that fact anymore. Artists that respond in ways that don't directly address that issue are nonetheless living in that space. They're in that late capitalist phase of humanity where basically industrialization has put us to it, taken us to a, a, a tipping point. You can't run from that anymore. We're all aware of that. You need to be willfully ignorant to actually try and pretend you don't understand those things anymore. Most artists I know are smart enough. Most people I know are smart enough to know which way the wind's blowing. So I really believe that, you know, a lot of the malaise that that we have in our society, it doesn't matter how much we have in our physical world, how how wealthy we are, how even, you know, privileged we are, uh, the, the human capacity to be just unhappy is... Pervas- all pervasive, and you've only got to look at rates of uh, depression and anxiety in the in the contemporary world. People are fundamentally un- unhappy and unsure about the stage we're in, and that's. I think that's just. I think I think having mental health issues in this era that we're in is a perfectly normal, natural, healthy state to be in. I almost think it's you know it makes sense. You know, we, we're living in very strange times especially for an animal. And we're animals. You know, we're creatures of the earth. You know, we're not robots or sort of ethereal sort of beings. We're we're earth and we're blood, skin and bone. You know, this stuff affects us, I think, at a very deep level, even if we're not addressing it. Uh, Do artists have a responsibility towards presenting that story? Uh, Only in as much as I think every human on earth has a responsibility to be aware, to be across the facts to not be burying their head in the sand, to not divert back to sentimentalism and create more sort of secular gods now that we've kicked the god that we made in the first place to the curb. Uh, it just seems to me that now's the time for us to wake up, find, find where, we, where we belong in the earth and take responsibility for what we've done. How we do that is obviously not a question I can answer today. None of us, none of us can. Do artists have a, an obligation? No, they don't have an obligation. I see it more as an opportunity. Artists have an opportunity to, to communicate how they feel about the, the broader world around them. 
I choose to take that opportunity. Thanks, Dale. Thanks very much. So that, that might be a good point to open, open the discussion out to the floor, if there are any questions or comments that anyone has. Um, so firstly, just thank you um, to Guy and Dale for having this talk and lovely work. So as a scientist, I'm always interested in art as a medium to address issues in the society. So I just want to ask you, with your work, have you had, actually had personal experiences with climate change deniers? And have you had conversation through your art and have you been able to convince them or, you know, send them a message or like how has your art influence to people who are denying this problem? Uh, I think one of the symptoms of this stage or problems with the, the sort of era that we're living in is that we've all siloed ourselves into various sort of camps. I don't know many people at all who are climate deniers. The closest person I could think of would be the bloke down the road who drives the ute and should have fixed his motor a long time ago. And I think, you clearly don't believe in climate change. Come to your studio for a little And he doesn't come to my studio. Um, I think, I think we're, we are in that really tricky sort of space at the moment where I'm probably preaching to the converted, let's be honest. And there's a lot of people who are at the footy. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. I'm not making a judgment. I'm not making a class judgment. No, I'm not making a class judgment. I love the footy. But my point is simply that, that, that you know... Some people choose not to bury their heads in the sand. Uh, anyone who, who chooses to do that now is clearly willfully ignorant. They want to be in denial. I don't know too many people that are actually like that anymore. I think that the inertia of change happens at a geopolitical level and that most people are far more informed and ready for, for action than our government seem to be able to actually enact. So there's that lag that goes on. Then there's the lobbyists from the coal and don't get me started. Yes. I've been campaigning to try and save a piece of land in West Bronsworth and I've met a lot of climate change deniers. And I mean campaigning as in if I put a leaflet on someone's house, I don't put it in the letterbox, I go to the door and knock and hand it to them. And there are a lot of people who look me straight in the eye and think I'm absolutely stupid. But on, in terms of your work, I find it really interesting and wonderful. But I would, I would just like to posit a problematizing of your notion as us as individuals, us as people, who need to look at how we have done this. No, 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 no. We're not just people or animals. We're also an ideological construct. And the ideological construct that is dominant, the dominant ideology in Australia at the moment is simply greed and profit. And until somebody dismantles that construct and allows the population to dismantle their imbibing of that construct, and still, until someone faces that, we can't even get to climate change. Because Mr Smith and Jones, who live in my street, still drive their petrol car, still do the same things, and don't want any, any taxes to pay for extra services by the council to do stuff with their rubbish, and thinks that us who work in the community garden are kind of a bit lefty and a bit stupid. So that still exists. And the scientific literacy level in this country, given the newspaper's lack of reporting, is abominable. So if I can ask a question from that, because of exactly... No, 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 no yeah. The individual. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the individual. And, and also, what role, I mean, seeing as we're here in a gallery, what role can art have in speaking to yeah, those very people? If you problematise the individual, you can take someone's 
some of the weight off because this responsibility is like pressure for us all, every single one of us. Yeah. First of all, absolutely, 100% on board with what you're saying. I, I agree entirely. I think that there's a human capacity, something about the human animal to want to better themselves and to provide for their families and to live as a rich and fulfilling life as possible. A lot of people see that as, you know, having a good car and going fishing and bringing their kids up. And that's the only invitation Correct. And that's the it's limit. not even their fault. No, it, well, absolutely it isn't their fault. The logical extension of the, hu- the individual human and whether or not it's their fault, it's probably the people living in poverty who have none of those things that would probably still aspire to those things. It's certainly not their fault, and they don't even have those, those sort of opportunities and things. The collective versus the individual is a very interesting thing to unpick. I'm a children's doctor, and um, I have a, a bit of art hanging on the walls in my consulting room, and among them, one of your paintings with the beautiful gold background and the picture of a cow consuming a landscape as though it's on a tea cloth going into its mouth. It's far and away the painting that the majority children comment on than any other work in the room. And they always ask me what it means, and I always put it back on them and ask them what they think it means. And it surprised me how often even very young children get the environmental message. And I wonder in your work how much you realise that it appeals to children, how much you try to make it appeal to children, and on your, in your thoughts on art as a way of communicating to children about environmental issues where a dry discourse mightn't otherwise. Thanks. Yeah, it's a bit of a tricky one, isn't it? How do we introduce some of these big concepts and overarching concerns we have for the future to our very own children and then the next generation that we're handing this world on to? Have that in mind when I make my art. I made a series of logging trucks which consisted of a toy truck and I painted an Australian landscape sort of lying on its side, sort of as if it had been sort of bundled up. And the idea there being that when you fell forest or when you clear forest you don't just bring home a bunch of logs you actually bring home that landscape you've altered that landscape you've you've changed that place so there's the place on the back of the truck it's a very simple metaphor and it's a very simple concept and I've been so delighted to see the way kids can unpack that concept so easily a, a lot of art benefits from having a, a, a sort of an esoteric and, you know, uh, impenetrable quality that people can contemplate forever. But I also like the idea of art that does have an immediacy, that has the ability to actually speak an idea or a message almost instantly. And I think that my art does aim as much as possible, probably less so in this latest body of work, which is a little more teasing out a few more complicated ideas. But some of my work in the past, the sheep, for example, are very much designed to be read and understood. And I consider that a success. I think that also raises an interesting point in relation to children's use of art and, and adults as, a, in a way, a therapeutic tool or a way of working out what, in fact, we do think about these issues. I mean, I think, Dale, you're probably doing it at a very sophisticated level, but I know that children in schools and Climate, our organisation, has had some experience with schools and, and the teachers in schools who all say that introducing some of these concepts to children or allowing them to think about them through their own artistic expression is an incredibly useful process and activity. Uh, and so I think we shouldn't forget the, the role of creativity 
for all of us, whether we're artists or not, whether it means digging things, planting things in the garden or engaging in some sort of creative enterprise as a place and a space and an activity which allows us to start thinking about things uh, outside of our normal parameters. Uh, just further to that too, um, I think art has an opportunity to introduce difficult subjects and environmental concerns in a way that invites people to contemplate them, to take a message home or to, to consider something. If I was to paint a picture of a clear felled forest, a lunar landscape, a scene of devastation, I, I would look at the painting and I would probably be horrified and I'd be saddened and I'd walk away. But if I create a sculpture that has the, the living landscape that's been taken away on the back of it and presented in a playful, interesting way that has a, po has a certain poetry to it, I think that that creates that sort of easier space for people to consider heavier concerns and more serious concerns. It's a safe space to have difficult and, int and to introduce things that are frankly, you know, really quite serious and dark and not all that attractive. Thanks, Guy, and thanks, Dale. That's really great to see the show. And I just wanted to bring you back, because we're so much of this is the podcast and it's audio rather than visual, but just to bring you back to the, the sort of Mount Rushmore kind of-esque portrait of, you know, obviously one of the, the sort of scientific geniuses of the 20th century, just using, because we know... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because, because it's Einstein with his tongue out, which is obviously one of those classic images of him that we sort of remember... But why you, could you just talk about why you chose that image sure. and what it says about your concerns as well? I'm really, really glad you asked me that. So it plays again on that idea of uh, secular gods, people who sort of transcended their corporal self and have, have, have become something far larger, if you like, in death. Einstein's contribution to science is just profound. We're still unpacking a lot of what he discovered with the theory of relativity. A lot of it's yet to be fully even proven, but it seems to be true. For me, Einstein embodies a lot of things that I think the human animal needs to aspire to. And if you don't mind, I'll actually read out an Einstein quote that I brought along with me because it sort of neatly encapsulates a lot of what I have tried to think about. This is Einstein. A human being is a part of the whole called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feeling as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his own consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. And for me, that's and so profound. And this man was an irreverent man. He he didn't he didn't live a, a high the high life. He rejected a lot of the fame and accolades that came his way. He was a real humanist, and he understood he understood that we are part of something bigger. That we're all a mass of atoms that have agreed to sort of hang together for a few decades, and then agree to kind of disperse again out into the universe. And we're just part of that bigger story. We're just part of that journey. And we need to be more like Einstein, if you ask me. So that's why I painted Einstein. Well, I think that's a great place to end. We all need to be more like Einstein.
Thank you very much for you all attending. It's, um, I don't often see these conversations working all so well, but I think today was utterly perfect. Every, we all share the problem here. I'd like to do in this gallery at some stage an exhibition of Rover Thomas, Fred Williams and Dale Cox because I think that tells you exactly what's happening and then the last part is very quick, isn't it, the sort of destructions of things. The one thing that nobody has raised today, which I think is a huge issue, is population and that brings into question doctors, I'm sorry, Hugh, to mention that, and the sciences and so on. And 45 years ago, Albert Tucker said to me, in this gallery, we will not get out of our cars until there's no fuel. So the discussion's been going on a long time. These sessions do something. There isn't an answer yet. We live in luxury. We don't know how to back off it. Because we're bad guests of the earth and we've forgotten that we're guests, maybe we can waste ourselves and educate our children. Let's hope. Thank you, you two. It's marvellous. That was a really fun special to do, honestly. I, I don't want to keep saying every episode that everything was special, but um, I felt that was quite special, and I was very humbled by the opportunity to, to get to record that. Uh, what did you think, Rich? Look, I found it fascinating. And do you know what I, I really enjoyed was that, once again, we come back to the theme of art as adding emotion to important issues such as climate change. We do hear a lot of facts and a lot of figures. and We read them in our newspapers, on our social media feeds, and it can become a bit blurry and everything sort of thrown at you kind of thing. It's my opinion, and just by talking to some people, that art does add, add that very special emotion, and that's what makes it connect with people. We did bring this up with Tracy Sorensen. Now, she is an author, academic, and activist, but she's also an artist. And we interviewed her two weeks ago. She said very much the same thing. She said art acts as that emotional bridge. She does crochet and sort of environmentally aware crochet with a bunch of other people. And her work on the Murray River. That's right. Yeah, the, the, the Macquarie River. Oh, that's the one. M, M something. <laughs> that's all right. No, that's okay, Macquarie River. And she said she's had more meaningful discussions with people who wander down, ask her what she's doing, and she can actually talk to people about things like climate change when she's doing her art. And that sort of came through for me a little bit in the talk from Dale, which I thought was wonderful and a very important uh, context for me. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I, I think that we are getting quite overwhelmed with sort of the facts side of things. Yeah, I think what you said about social media, exactly. Like, I'm guilty of not reading every one of the articles that we're putting up, just even our own climactic page. And thank you for, for taking the time to do that, Rich. You uh, you do a lot of good work there. But um, art as the, the bridging mechanism, I think that's um, that's a really good way to put it, because that's the reason art exists, is to contextualize and make sort of impactful and and arts is just such a a human activity and mm. outlet and i think it's really good to to bring some some of that humanity to something that is very very real but it's hard to conceptualize personally when you're just reading scientific reports and data yeah so i think you're you're right between tracy 2 weeks ago this now i think this sort of intersection of of climate change and arts is going to be a uh, a real rich seam of a topic to explore later on. I'm kind of inspired to, to have more conversations like this. And, and how about you? Absolutely, Mark. Yeah, I, I think we really hit a good vein here. It's, it's yeah. coming out coming out quite a lot. I did like to Dale's 
point about uh, an opportunity. I think it might have been in response to a question, and mm-hmm. he said that artists they don't ha- they're not uh, forced they to have the obligation. There's no obligation to do it, but it's an opportunity. It's a big opportunity to raise awareness. I really enjoyed that point too. Um, uh, you were there, Mark. Um, what was the audience reaction to that? I think we all really felt that, like you know, n- nobody was telling. People like Upton Sinclair that he had to write a book like The Jungle. Mm. I'm not steeped in the art world, I should say, but I'm sure that around the time of like the Industrial Revolution, painters were starting to, to mm. paint its, its toll and its impact on the environment and on people's lives. And that was important work. And I, I hope that the artists like that are remembered mm. for that conceptualizing they did. I think we all kind of got it that being surrounded by those actual physical works around us in that gallery room, we were a lot more in touch with the emotions of the future we're all facing. And we all, I think we all felt a lot more personally motivated to do more against it than if we just come out of a, an academic lecture. Um, so I yeah. think it was, it mm-hmm. was very impactful mm-hmm. for us. Um, and I, I hope that that comes through on the podcast a little bit as well. And I'm really looking forward to the artwork being portrayed on. The podcast that that is going to be amazing, Mark. I can't wait for that. To be honest, <laughs> yeah, that's true. And um, I, I really, you know, whether it's twenty years, thirty years, whenever I can, you know, justify spending fifteen grand on a piece of art, <laughs> maybe never, <Yeah>. but um, <laughs> if I can, that I I really look forward to having a, a Dale Cox original on my mm. wall at home. Mm. So I hope you all enjoy the opportunity to get to see some yeah. of Dale's work. Here And um, if you do have any issues with looking at it on your podcast app, uh, there is a YouTube video in the show notes below uh, where you can see it all at the appropriate times. Okay. And just before we do get to the credits, there's just one thing that caught my ear, I think is the right, right term, <laughs> when I was editing the program. And that was the children's doctor who said he had Dale Cox painting on his wall. And he said that children seem to connect with it and ask questions about it. And more than that, seemed to take it in. I thought that was uh, that was quite amazing and encouraging. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Encouraging. Okay. And now to the credits. Thank you to producer Caleb Fidicaro, designer Abigail Hawkins, and I'd like to thank advisor Richard Miller and our composer Greg Grassi. Links to where you can find and engage with all these fine folks are also in the show notes below. Mm-hmm. And finally, thank you so much to Climart. Dale Cox, and our hosts at the Australian Galleries. All links to these fine people as well in the show notes, and please do all you can to engage with and support them as well. Okay, and thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you all next week. Cheers. The Climactic Collective.